recent news that only surprised moderates and the politically ignorant, Maryland proposed a bill that would allow the neglect, abandonment, or murder of babies up to 28 days after birth without legal punishment. But this shouldn't surprise us. Democrats have always supported infanticide. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, this headline you may have seen recently from from Maryland, and it was interesting to me the kind of responses um, that we always see when a radical piece of pro-abortion legislation uh, gets proposed by the Democrats. People r- respond usually with shock and awe. Some people uh, don't actually believe it's true. They think it's just like Republican talking points that are are talking about a, a very unlikely application of this bill that would actually happen. It's just Republicans getting headlines for clicks because talking about your political opponents as being pro-infanticide, you know, is, is obviously going to get headlines because it's so intense. And, and you see these kind of responses sometimes to radical pieces of legislation like this. And it's always interesting to me because you have a few different camps. You have people who are surprised or I guess shocked, right? Like they, that, that this is actually real. You have those who deny it, like the Democrats are always going to say, no, this is, this is not true. This is just, these are just Republican talking points. The bill's not going to do that. Or you have people fully acknowledging that, that uh, what the bill does and, and defending it. Um, and then people like me who are saying, uh, this is nothing new. Democrats have always tried to avoid legislation that would protect infants either born alive after a failed abortion or just infants born in a normal circumstance whose parents don't want to care for them. And so I thought it would be helpful to kind of do a little bit of a history of some of the Supreme Court cases, some of the legislative attempts regarding protecting infants that will kind of maybe clue you into the more sinister reality, which is that the Democrat Party and their political serviles, right? So what do I mean by that? Uh, Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, right? The American Medical Association, AMA. Um, all of these different groups, they're all in bed together, <laughs> okay? They're all pro-abortion. They all vote for the same people. So, you know, sometimes I'll get hit or conservatives, pro-lifers will get hit, but when they come out against the Democrat Party and they'll say, you know, that's not fair to cast the entire liberal establishment as for infanticide, right, or, or for transgender bathroom laws, you know, because they didn't vote on it, right, or or uh, I didn't see them support such a radical piece of legislation. It's like, okay, we're, they're all voting for the same people, right? The, this whole blob, this liberal blob, we can call it the culture of death, okay? You can call it the, the secular progressive moral revolution. You could call it the abortion industrial complex and all the different figures and institutions that are at play, in pushing and protecting abortion, they all believe the same thing, right? They're never going to vote for a pro-life Republican. They're always going to vote for a pro-abortion Democrat. You know what? They wouldn't even vote for a, a pro-choice Republican because they wouldn't want to add a seat in the House of Representatives and therefore um, increase the likelihood that that pro-choice Republican would cave to his party and vote for a pro-life Speaker of House. <laughs> you know, like that is how focused they are in protecting Abortion, and so I think going through some of these um, historical events, um, both 
um, before I was born and after I was born, so I guess you can call it the last 35 or so years, um, will be powerful to wake you up to this reality. Because if these these if these if this issue was slavery, right? If this issue was child abuse of you know children that we can all agree are persons, not 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 tiny children in the womb, but if it was child abuse of ten year olds, or if it was spousal abuse, let's say, heck, if it was um, removing women's equal right to vote once again, um, and that was the topic in question, then any Democrat who supported removing a woman's constitutional right to vote or allowing men to legally beat their wives once again. Any politician who did that and therefore any person that voted for that individual or supported them would be cast out into utter darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There would be no tolerance for a politician, a party, an institution who supported um, such a debauched position. But if it's babies in the womb or if it's freaking infants who have already been born, you'll see, and I want you to notice, you'll see no such um, reaction from the culture of death to the individuals who support that. So, so just to frame the conversation, right? So, because you get like you get squishy Christians and pro-lifers who say, "I'm not pro-life, I'm whole life," right? Or I am pro-life, but I'm also whole life. Meaning that like I see the Democrat Party, they do better on other life issues. They have they'll they'll say things like they have a more consistent ethic of life. <laughs> so they'll say, sure, the Democrats are not pro-life, they're pro-abortion. I don't really like that. But they have a more consistent life ethic from womb to tomb. I'm pro-life from womb to tomb. And the Democrats, they do really good pro-life, quote unquote, things. And they're using, they're redefining pro-life, right? Not to mean that the baby is a person in the womb and shouldn't be killed. They're saying quality of life. Anytime you hear someone say, I'm not, I'm, I'm pro-life and whole life, or I'm not pro-life, I'm whole life. What they're meaning is that they care more about quality of life outside the womb than protection of life in it. Or worse yet, they're saying uh, that we should overlook protection of life in the womb in order to secure quality of life outside the womb. They're telling us to look past intrinsic evils and to allow intrinsic evils like abortion in order to prevent contingent evils. Because what's an intrinsic evil? It's evil in and of itself. It's evil in every circumstance, period. There's no circumstance in which it's not evil. That's an intrinsic evil, right? So like murdering your son or daughter, (laughs) okay, like killing a baby. Okay. These are intrinsic evils. Okay. A contingent evil is something that may or may not be evil like war. Yes. For all the squishy liberals out there who are pacifists, there are just war scenarios where it would actually be a moral wrong for you to not go to war because of the consequences of doing so. Right. Poverty is poverty intrinsically evil. No, but it might be it might be the result of other intrinsic evils. Do you see what I mean? So when they say I'm whole life and the Democrat Party does better on whole life issues, uh, they're saying we need to look past the intrinsic evil of abortion in order to maybe allegedly, I don't know, prevent contingent evils. The reason why I'm giving you that that frame of reference is because there are a lot of squishy Christians and pro and alleged pro-lifers or conservatives who will look past the abortion industrial complexes condoning of freaking infanticide, okay, because of the quality of life outside the womb issues that the Democrats are really good on. You know, they have good programs for the poor, 
and um, they have universal health care and they want universal basic income. And my Christian ethic tells me to love my neighbor. So I'm going to prostitute my biblical individual mandate to love my neighbor to the state and then and then feel really good about how compassionate and sacrificial I am with my funds. <laughs> of course, you know, I'm demeaning the position because it's not really worth entertaining in an intellectual framework. But that's what they're saying. But would they be willing to look past the same party and institutions condoning of spousal abuse? Um, in order to protect the Democrats' social safety net um, policies. No, of course not. They would suddenly become single-issue voters. So the reason why I wanted to preface all of the show with those comments is because we know if this was any other issue, there would be no tolerance for that the Democrat Party anymore, and you would you would be you would be castigated as a as a horrific, disgusting scum of the earth bigot if you were to vote for that party or that politician despite their condoning of lynching or spousal abuse or removing women's rights to vote. Um, But if it's the infant who's already been born, um, suddenly nobody has their panties in a wad anymore. There's not the same level of outrage. So what does that really tell us about our culture of death and how powerfully impactful the culture of death has been on the church, on Christians who continue to remain politically neutral or actually vote for this bigotry in the first place. So this Maryland law, that's what we're talking about today. Um, this was a week or two ago and and had everyone, you know, had everyone up in arms. But to me, I just shrugged my shoulders and said, yep, that sounds like the Democrats. Uh, Maryland proposed a bill that would allow the neglect, abandonment, or murder of babies up to 28 days after birth without legal punishment. Now, some, some pro-lifers will say, um, Seth, that's not fair. The bill doesn't say that. You know, I got this pushback when I came against the Equality Act, and I explained how one of many things that the the Equality Act would do is it would allow the government to uh, go after churches and strip their C3 status and uh, file discrimination lawsuits against them if the pastor were to to preach from Genesis saying that there are two genders, God made man and woman, um, because the Equality Act would redefine these terms. And so therefore, if you were preaching that there was only one man and one woman, that would be bigotry, right? That would be discrimination against the transgender community. I said things that like pro-life OBGYNs would be sued for pregnancy discrimination if they personally chose to not perform an abortion. If they told a pregnant woman, I don't perform abortions, I have moral or religious objections to that, but you can get someone else to kill your baby, but I'm not going to do it, goodbye, he could be sued for pregnancy discrimination because they've redefined the word um, sex discrimination to include pregnancy discrimination. And so rather than pregnancy discrimination, meaning you were fired for being pregnant, like was happening in the 50s and 60s, pregnancy discrimination means someone not wanting to get rid of your pregnancy, not wanting to kill your baby. I, I articulated some of the results that would happen from the Equality Act to some of my friends, and one of them said, Seth, that's not fair. Nowhere in the bill does it say that. <laughs> it's like, so we need to we need to return to how statecraft works in, in a few seconds, okay? How policies are made today and laws are made today is far more with what is not said than what is said in the law, okay? that That is why when you read some of the bills and legislation from the left and you scratch your head, that's why. If you don't understand it, that's actually why. It's supposed to be unclear, okay? It's supposed to be soft soap, it's supposed to be open-ended because it gives them the political capital and options to 
apply and expand their bill to every sort of moral context they want to do so with it. Okay, this is not, you know, circa America 1800s where a bill's on one page and it's incredibly clear. You get these omnibus spending bills, of course, today, which they pack in everything that they want. So you have to be very clear, and this is why we we rely on and love our conservative, um, you know, lawyers like Ted Cruz and others and the people over at the ACLJ who understand statecraft and they understand how um, how meticulous and strategic the left is in writing their bills with what they leave unsaid or what they don't define or what they redefine. Because in this case, you don't have to be a woman to be pregnant. This Maryland Senate Bill 669 is also known as the Pregnant Persons Freedom Act of 2022. Pregnant persons, well, we used to call the uh, those women, uh, right? Um, but you see, that's cisgender uh, bigotry now, if you say that. Um, according to Olivia Summers at the ACLJ, the bill also proposes a revision of the fetal murder manslaughter statute that would serve to handcuff the investigation of infant deaths unrelated to abortion. This is because the legislation prohibits investigations and criminal prosecutions for women and medical professionals for a failure to act in relation to a perinatal death. Not prenatal, I said perinatal after birth. In other words, a baby born alive and well could be abandoned and left to starve or freeze to death, Olivia Summers wrote, and nothing could be done to punish those who participate in that cruel death. She said that the language used is unclear. There you go. That's what I was just telling you, right? You have to be unspecific, right? You have to be nondescript in your language because if you're very descriptive and you're very articulate and specific with your language, then the left gives away the linguistic game, right? And then the moderates go, screw you. I don't want to have anything to do with your infanticidal bigotry. Okay, so what does she mean by the language is unclear? The law could be interpreted to, quote, prevent investigations into the death of infants at least seven days after their birth and may extend to infants as old as four weeks. So if you saw the headline saying Maryland proposes bill to allow killing infants up to 28 days after birth. Well, 28 days would be four weeks, right? Now, where are they getting that number from? If the bill is not specific in its definition and use of the word perinatal after birth, then what standard or definition are they relying on in their use of the word perinatal, okay? Olivia Summers from the ACLJ says, the Maryland Code does not define the word perinatal, but a 2020 law does define perinatal care as, quote, provision of care during pregnancy, labor, delivery, and postpartum and neonatal periods. Well, that would be after birth, postpartum and neonatal. So she's saying a 2020 law defines perinatal care to include post-birth. And then if you go to MedicineNet, right, a website owned by WebMD, they give a definition of perinatal as, quote, the 20th to include as the 20th and 28th week of gestation to one to four weeks after birth. So from 20 to 28th weeks of gestation to one to four weeks after birth, hence the 28 days being four weeks. So this law is um, is very clear in its uh, refusal to define what they mean by the word perinatal. And so when you apply the law with its open-ended language, 
you could have a legal scenario in which a mother abandons her infant or demands that the abortionist kill her baby born alive during a botched abortion or simply refuses to care for her infant within 28 days after birth and there would be no legal recourse. There would be no legal punishments for a mother's actual murder of her infant. So that's the breakdown of that law. Now listen, the intellectual class, okay, the pro-abortion philosophers, they have been clear for a long time. They have built out the consistency of their philosophy, meaning that they know their support of abortion, when consistently applied, ought to include the permissibility to abandon infants as well, because the moral properties on which they ground personhood would be properties that the infant also lacks, right? Whether it's self-awareness or, or consciousness, right? or desires, a sense of self, some of the attributes, cognitive abilities, and functions that the left says the unborn must meet before they're a person would also be cognitive abilities and functions that the infant fails to possess as well. So my point is, is that ideology is a hell of a drug, and people tend to live out the conclusions of the premises that they've adopted even though they may not realize that they've adopted those premises, right? Which is why C.S. Lewis said that the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones being argued for, they're the ones being assumed. Because assumed premises, especially when undetected, can destroy a nation. People tend to move from point A to point B along their worldview without realizing that maybe, that, that without realizing what, the ideas they've adopted, and certainly not being able to articulate them, right? But we all still live according to these dominant assumptions and worldview premises that we've absorbed. And people like Peter Singer, one of the most popular pro-abortion philosophers, has admitted this. He once said that the liberal search for a morally crucial dividing line between the newborn baby and the fetus has failed to yield any event or stage of development which can separate those with a right to life from those who lack such a right. So what's he saying? He's saying all the liberals who are searching for a very clear line between that sort of proves the difference between newborn babies and fetuses, uh, we haven't really found that line. There has been no clear line. In, in the difference of development, right, or events between that baby in the womb and the baby outside the womb. There is no morally crucial dividing line between those two that can bear the weight of figuring out, like, who has a right to life and who doesn't. Does that make sense? I mean, pretty stark language from one of the most pro-abortion philosophers in the country and who is, is of course, most known for his defense of... Infanticide. Now, whether the kooky Democrats in Maryland who supported this bill can articulate their premises like the debauched Peter Singer can is really beside the point, right? Because they're still living according to those deeply held premises. And those premises and those ideas have consequences. And bad ideas like this have victims. And those victims may very well be, unless this bill is vetoed or blocked by the Republicans, uh, actual infants being left to die and having no justice in the courts 
for being murdered. But listen, the Democrats have long supported infanticide. This 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 new piece of news from Maryland, which is owning all the headlines, is nothing new. We need to learn the sinister history of the Democrat Party, the abortion industrial complex, all of the figures who are in bed together who will always team up to ensure that the Democrat Party <clears throat> remains in control, okay? Regardless of whether they have a voting record of voting for Democrats, uh, regardless of, of whether or not they've spoken in support of some of the things we're going to talk about, they still all support one another, right? It's still part of the same blob. And if the issue, like I said, were spousal abuse, um, there would be a, a system of accountability for anyone who was condoning or remaining silence on re-legalizing spousal abuse. So, so we understand that their silence on infanticide is their permission. It is their willingness to look past it in order to protect abortion. So here are some examples. We'll just go through some very briefly of the Democrat Party's obsession with infanticide. There was a Supreme Court case a while back called Bowen versus American Hospital Association. Bowen versus American Hospital Association. There's a great review of this case at embryo.asu.edu who does wonderful coverage of, of bills um, related to abortion. So this was from 1986. The American Hospital Association joined by the American Medical Association, right, the AMA, which has long been pro-abortion, they brought a lawsuit against the HHS, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and its director at the time, the HHS director in 1986, his name was Otis R. Bowen, hence the Bowen versus American Hospital Association lawsuit name, um, regarding a series of requirements for neonatal care. Okay, so the HHS had requirements for neonatal care, babies born, um, after birth, and the American Hospital Association, joined by the American Medical Association, sued the HHS and their director, Otis Bowen, to get those requirements for neonatal care struck down. Okay, now, yes, you, you're probably already uncomfortable. Like, why would you ever want requirements for caring for infants struck down? Good question. What were these requirements? These requirements, the first set being called the Baby Doe Rules, were created by the HHS, and Reagan's administration in 1983. The rules mandated that all federally funded hospitals provide maximal treatment to handicapped infants and report any case where parental consent is withheld if medical neglect is suspected, meaning if there's any reason to believe that uh, the parents are not caring for the children, right, um, and, and that there is neglect at the hospital or from the parents themselves. So, so very specific, right? I want wanting to specifically to make sure that infants who have something wrong with them, they're not chromosomally or physically perfect, right? They have Down syndrome or they're physically handicapped, that those infants are are, are provided maximum treatment like any other baby, right? Um, and that failure to um, accord with those standards also be reported. However, in the Bowen versus American Medical Association um, Supreme Court decision in a five to three decision, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Congress never intended for Section 504 to address an infant's civil rights and that the clause cannot be invoked without evidence of discrimination. So in short, the Supreme Court ruled that the American Hospital Association and the American Medical Association had an adequate case against the HHS in their enforcement of requirements for neonatal care. In other words, in short, translating this euphemisms into the culture 
of death, the culture of death into reality, there could be circumstances in which babies who have something wrong with them can be left to die and should not have the federal government ensuring that federally funded hospitals have to have to ensure adequate medical care for babies born after birth who might have something wrong with them. So eugenics, right? That there should be no case in which the federal government is utilizing its authority to ensure protection for infants. Oh, we're because we're, we're overstepping our, our our bounds, right? We need to leave those those cases to hospitals to make those decisions. It is a condoning of infanticide. Hadley Arcus, in his book Natural Rights and the Right to Choose, the phenomenal constitutional legal scholar and um, natural rights, natural law professor, said that regarding this case that Thurgood Marshall, right, the celebrated black Supreme Court justice by the left, Thurgood Marshall and the rest of the justices were saying, quote, the same rights of privacy contained in Roe v. Wade entailed now the exclusive private right of the family to determine whether their newborn child had a life worth living or a life worth preserving. So that was, um, of course, a decision that was lauded and celebrated by the um, abortion industry and the Democrats. And of course, every Supreme Court justice who, who voted to re- remove these requirements for neonatal care from the HHS, of course, were all um, on the left, right? Or would have been registered Democrats had they not been Supreme Court justices. So that's another example. Here's another lawsuit from 1983 called Planned Parenthood versus Ashcroft. And in the lawsuit, they um, they uh, have a testimonial from Dr. Robert Christ. Pretty pretty disgusting that that's his last name. Um, and here's what Dr. Robert Christ said in his testimony in the Planned Parenthood versus Ashcroft um, case. He said, "Quote: The abortion patient has a right not only to be rid of the growth called a fetus in her body, but also has a right to a dead fetus." Let me say that again. The abortion patient, meaning the mother, the woman getting the abortion, has a right not only to be rid of the growth called a fetus in her body, but also has a right to a dead fetus. And this really is the belief behind the pro-infanticide Democrat leftist radical wing, and which is why they've opposed the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which we'll briefly touch on at the end of the show. They don't just believe that a woman has the right to a procedure called abortion, they believe that if that procedure called abortion fails, that she still has the right for what she paid for. And what did she pay for? Well, she paid for a dead child, right? Because what is an abortion? It's the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Most abortions are successful. So the left is saying, and Dr. Robert Christ in Planned Parenthood versus Ashcraft in 1983, they're all saying, no, she actually has a right to a dead child. Well, if she has a right to a dead child and the abortion failed and the abortion survivor baby is now on the hospital operating table, what does that mean? It means that she has the right to demand that that infant is murdered after that baby has come out of the birth canal. That is the realistic application of what they're saying. And Justice Lewis Powell, who was on the Supreme Court in 1983, Justice Lewis Powell responded to this testimony from Dr. Robert Christ and pronounced his argument to, quote, be remarkable in its candor, end quote. Remarkable in its candor, right, or in its honesty. But notice, Justice Lewis Powell did not say remarkably wrong. No, 
Justice Lewis Powell never said that. He just said that that argument was remarkable in its candor. There was no condemnation of the fact that a testimony in your case just said that a woman has the right to a dead child. So if the baby's born alive during a botched abortion procedure, we need infanticide because, damn it, that's what she paid for. She paid for a dead baby. It matters not that the baby was born alive and is now outside of the birth canal. She paid for a dead child, and she's entitled to that. There you go. Another example of the Supreme Court making friendly with infanticide. Was there any any uh, major figures in the Democrat Party who opposed Justice Lewis Powell, uh, who opposed the testimony of Dr. Robert Christ for condoning infanticide? Um, no, of course not. Um, some more examples. Of course, you have partial birth abortion, right? We're talking about how the Democrats have always supported infanticide. Now, maybe you'll say, well, Seth, partial birth abortion is not infanticide. Anyone who says that has their head so far stuck in the sand um, that, that they are completely ignorant uh, or lacking of anything resembling a moral compass. <laughs> um, a partial birth abortion, as we have gruesomely and yet... Um, realistically articulated on this show involves delivering a baby 75% way out of the birth canal feet first. You actually grab their feet with forceps and you pull them partially out. And then you leave the shoulder blades and the, and the head left in the vaginal canal. And then you take forceps uh, or scissors and you insert them up the birth canal. You stab them into the back of the baby's skull you open them to create a cavity and you stick a suction catheter vacuum tube into that hole you've created and you suck the brains out. They call it an abortion because par part of the baby, partial birth, right, is still in the mother. And abortions are – that term abortion can only be used when it's the killing of a baby in the uterus, right? You don't, you don't say abortion when you kill an infant. You call it infanticide. They can only use the word abortion if it refers to the termination or murder of a baby in the uterus in the uterus. And so because part of the baby is still in the uterus, they can still get away with calling it an abortion. Then you remove the collapsed skull of that infant and you call it an abortion. Anyone who doesn't think that is infanticide, maybe let's say um, has their head so far up their own rectum, it's coming out their face again. Um, apologies if you're listening to this show in the car with your kids, but you ought to know now this is not necessarily a family-friendly show. Uh, anyone who would say that partial birth abortion is not infanticide, I, I, I have no words for you. Your moral compass is so skewed um, that I wouldn't trust you um, to babysit your own niece. So what is the history of partial birth abortion? We did this on the show a couple weeks ago, but it bears repeating because very few um, people know the history um, of the abortion wars, specifically the legal history of the abortion wars, right? Because statecraft is soulcraft, to quote Aristotle, right? The, the government, through its laws and policies, prescribe which kind of behaviors are acceptable or not acceptable in a civilized society. It's not as if politics is less significant morally because it's politics. Americans have a very strange tendency of, 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 of separating morality from politics or making friendly with certain disgusting aspects of one political party uh, because, you know, uh, they're, they're good with the other things, right? As if, as if the, uh, the genocide of a million babies a year is not significant enough within the Democrat Party to wholly condemn that party. They make friendly with it. And, and, and we separate this idea of morality from politics, which is why the pulpits in America and the church are so silent, right? They say, we're called to preach the gospel and politics is something else. No, it's not. It's morality with flesh on it, 
That's what politics is. You're determining how your republic and society is built. What kind of things will be condemned? What kind of things will be condoned? What kind of things will be encouraged? Which kind of things will be discouraged? Which kind of things will be funded? What kind of things will be defunded? These things build the moral fiber of a republic, the conscience of a nation. That is incredibly significant. So when I give you the votes of people who voted to protect partial birth abortion, those people are saying that is a blessing of liberty. I am for that. Okay, and when you're silent, you're also saying you're for it. You have to you have to take positions. You have to learn to say no to evil and yes to the good. And so when we talk about, you know, the the voting history of these people, it's not insignificant. It is very significant. You can't make peace with evil and certainly not this type of evil. Well, you'll remember that that Bill Clinton vetoed the partial birth abortion ban act. Okay, how did that break down? Uh, 54 people voted yes, 54 people voted no. Um, Republicans who voted no, eight. Democrats who voted no, 46, right? For, meaning they did not want the partial birth abortion ban. They didn't want to ban that procedure. 46 Democrats did not want to ban that procedure. Nine Democrats did want to ban it. 45 Republicans did want to ban it. And eight Republicans did not want to ban it. Um, on December 7th, 1995, the Senate passed the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, and after some back and forth over di different versions of the bill, the House passed the bill with some clarifying amendments on March <clears throat> 25th, 1996, and then next month on April 10th, 1996, Bill Clinton vetoed the bill, okay? So that is that, if that's not a condoning of infanticide, a green lighting of infanticide, I don't know what is. Now... Uh, Dr. Martin Haskell, who's been considered the, the inventor of the partial birth abortion uh, procedure, wrote a paper in 1992 called Dilation and Extraction for the Late Second Trimester Abortion. And he read this paper out loud at the National Abortion Federation's September 1992 Risk Management Seminar. A couple weeks ago, we read to you a description by partial birth abortion by, Dr., uh, by nurse Brenda Schaffer, I think was her name. Um, and she described being in the room when Martin Haskell would murder infants in these ways. But just to put some more flesh on this conversation, I want to read to you from Dr. Martin Haskell himself, the creator of the partial birth abortion procedure, in his paper that he read in 1992 at the National Abortion Federation's Risk Management Seminar. Here's what he said. With the lower extremity of the fetus in the vagina, the surgeon uses his fingers to deliver the opposite lower extremity, then the torso, the shoulders, and the upper extremities. The skull lodges at the internal cervical. Uh, usually there is not enough dilation for it to pass through. The fetus is oriented dorsal or spine up. At this point, the right-handed surgeon slides the fingers of his left hand along the back of the fetus and hooks the shoulders of the fetus with the index and ring fingers. Next, he slides the tip of the middle finger along the spine toward the skull while applying traction to the shoulders and lower extremities. The middle finger lifts and pushes the anterior cervical lip out of the way. While maintaining this tension, lifting the cervix and applying traction to the shoulders with the fingers of the left hand, the surgeon takes the pair of blunt, curved Metzenbaum scissors in the right hand. He carefully advances the tip, curved down along the spine and under this middle finger until he feels it contact the base of the skull under the tip of his middle finger. 
The surgeon then forces the scissors into the base of the skull or into the foramen magnum. Having safely entered the skull, he spreads the scissors to enlarge the opening. The surgeon removes the scissors and introduces a suction catheter into the hole and evacuates the skull contents. With a catheter in place, he applies traction to the fetus, removing it completely from the patient. There you go. Very clinical language, of course. He's not going to call it a baby or a person. He's not going to call it a decapitation, right? He's not going to call it um, any of the terms that you and I would use. But this is infanticide. At this point, the infant's feet are kicking and flailing around, expecting the warmth of their mother's arms. And instead, they almost literally have their head chopped off. This is the closest thing to a French guillotine for unborn babies. That is a partial birth abortion, and the Democrats have been making cozy with this type of infanticide since the early 1990s when Bill Clinton vetoed a ban that would prevent killing babies in those ways. And yet you have some very disgusting individuals within the abortion industrial complex that say that such a procedure is necessary because sometimes you have to perform it to save mom's life. This was one of the big arguments made in the early 90s when Clinton vetoed the partial birth abortion ban. He argued that he would have been willing to pass the ban if only it had made allowances for the circumstances in which a woman's life was endangered by the abortion. But that assumes that a partial birth abortion would be the best or the safest way to perform a late-term abortion when mom's life is endangered by the pregnancy. That's simply not true. Of course, you can simply deliver the baby early with a cesarean section or induce early labor. But many of the science people, the doctors, right, the the follow-the-science people, have said for decades that such a procedure, the partial birth abortion, is indeed not the only way to save mom's life in a high-risk pregnancy. And indeed, there is no circumstance in which a partial birth abortion would ever be necessary. Just to quote to you some of the people who are qualified to say as such, former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times in September of 1996 and said, with all that modern medicine has to offer, partial birth abortions are not needed to save the life of the mother. And the procedure's impact on a woman's cervix can put future pregnancies at risk. Dr. Pamela Smith, a director of medical education at the Department of OBGYN at Mount Sinai Hospital in Chicago, said there are absolutely no obstetrical situations encountered in this country which would require partial birth abortion to preserve the life or health of the mother. And she adds two more risks to partial birth abortions being cervical incompetence in subsequent uh, pregnancies caused by three days of forceful dilation of the cervix and the uterine rupture caused by rotating the fetus in the womb. Joseph DeCook, a fellow... Um, at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, stated there is no literature that testifies to the safety of partial birth abortions. It's a maverick procedure devised by maverick doctors who wish to deliver a dead fetus. Such abortions could lead to infection, causing sterility. He also said drawing out the baby in breech position is a very dangerous procedure and could tear the uterus. Such a ruptured uterus could cause the mother to bleed to death in 10 minutes. The puncturing of the child's skull also produces bone shards that could puncture the uterus. And lastly, Daniel Johnson, um, who, who wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times in May of 1997, said our panel could not I, I find uh, any identified circumstance in which the procedure was the only safe and effective abortion method. 
um, the American Medical Association supported the federal ban on partial birth abortions passed by Congress and vetoed by President um, Clinton. And now, of course, the AMA is radically pro-abortion and won't even support the, par- the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Um, furthermore, on partial birth abortion, you have the Stenberg versus Carhartt Supreme Court decision. And I've talked about this on the show in the past. This Supreme Court case was from 2000, okay? Stenberg v. Carhartt. And this was a Nebraska law that wanted to ban partial birth abortions. And so it goes up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rules 5-4 to strike down Nebraska's state-level ban on partial birth abortions. The Supreme Court said in 2000 that a ban on partial birth abortions was unconstitutional. 5-4. Who ruled to strike it down? Stephen Breyer, um, Stevens, O'Connor, Soter, and Ginsburg. Yes, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG, the notorious RBG, the feminist slay queen, one of the most beloved figures by the secular progressive movement. And yet there's been no condemnation from the Democrats, right, from the left regarding Ruth Bader Ginsburg full-blown greenlighting and defense of infanticide. Why? Because Democrats have always supported infanticide. (laughs) This is nothing new, guys. Uh, And then later in 2003, we finally did get a ban on partial birth abortions signed by President Bush in 2003. Here was how the voting broke down Um, uh, once again. uh, Yes, yes to ban at 64, no um, 34, and not voting was two. Okay, so that's the Senate. Republicans who voted no, three. Democrats who voted no, 31. Okay, Um, so 31 Democrats did not want to ban infanticide, and three Republicans did not want to ban infanticide. The rest of the Republicans did want to ban infanticide, and uh, then the very slim uh, remainder of Democrats um, left voted to to not ban it uh, or to to ban partial birth abortions. OK, so I mean, sure, you've got three Republicans who should be cast out into utter darkness in 2003 who voted to not ban partial birth abortions. Uh, the rest of them were Democrats who voted to um, for partial birth abortions. I, I, I don't know how else to communicate this, except that the Democrat Party is the party of abortion and infanticide. And then you have the, the, the case Gonzalez versus Carhartt, okay, in 2007. So you get the ban on partial birth abortions in 2003, okay? Four years later, you get the Supreme Court case Gonzalez versus Carhartt. And the question was simply this. Should we uphold the ban on partial birth abortions from 2003, or should we overturn the ban on partial birth abortions and allow partial birth abortions once again? That was the question for the Supreme Court in 2007. Now, luckily, the the court voted to uphold the ban on partial birth abortions, but I believe the voting was 5-4 once again, 5-2 to uphold it, 4 to overturn it. Who voted to overturn the ban on partial birth abortions? Right. Well, you got Ruth Bader Ginsburg once again. You have Stephen Breyer once again and Stevens and Sauter. So so no surprise there once again. Um, Lastly, let's talk about the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act just to put the lid on the Democrats' obsession with killing babies, both prenatally and perinatally. Right. This is, uh, you know, you could call this fourth trimester abortions, full-blown infanticide. You guys may remember Governor of Virginia Ralph Northam 
in 2019, I think January of 2019, uh, went on a radio show and was asked questions about his his uh, representative's bill. I think her name was Tran, something Tran was her last name. And she had proposed New York's version of the Reproductive Health Act in Virginia, which would have legalized abortion through point of birth in the state of Virginia and removed abortions from the penal code. Meaning if a, if a man murders a pregnant woman and the baby and mom die, the murderer will only be charged with one count of homicide, not two. Incredibly radical. That's what uh, Andrew Cuomo passed in 2019 in New York. And then you had Ralph Northam trying to pass the same thing in Virginia. And a judge asked uh, Representative Tran in a viral clip at the time, he asked her how far along in the baby's development would your bill allow abortion? And she won't answer the question. You can go Google this. The clip is you know, still on the internet, of course, because the internet is forever. And the judge asked ask her to be very specific. He says, okay, let's say a woman's dilating. A woman's dilating. She's about to give birth. According to your bill, can she legally request an abortion at this point? And you see Representative Tran get very uncomfortable. Like literally, if you're watching the show, guys, her face goes like this. Uh, 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 yes, my bill would allow that. That was That's what she said, okay? So then the, her governor, Northam, gets brought on a radio show and asked very specifically what would happen in that circumstance. Like let's say a baby was, I don't know, born alive during a botched abortion procedure. And here's what Northam said. We would make the baby comfortable. We would, we would resuscitate the baby if that's what the mother wanted. And then the mother and the doctor would have a conversation. A conversation about what? About what to do with a freaking infant who's already been born. There's no conversation. Resuscitate the baby if that's what the mother wanted. Have a conversation. What in the world? So uh, Ben Sass, a senator in, uh, is it Nebraska? Uh, I'm forgetting. Uh, ben Sass, a senator, he, he, he drafts and sponsors the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Now, there had been a version of this in, I think, 2002 called the, the, the Born Alive Infants Protection Act. But at the time, that bill didn't have any teeth. When we say a law doesn't have teeth, we mean it doesn't have an enforcement mechanism, right? It, there's not like significant consequences for disobeying this law so that you disincentivize um, people breaking the law, right? And so Ben Sass recognized that that law didn't really have any teeth. He heard Governor Northam's disgusting comments, and we have stories from abortionists, right, who have allowed infants to die or have snipped their spinal cords and 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 literally murdered infants who they who they failed to adequately murder in the womb. So this does happen. It's it's almost never reported because the abortion industry is the least regulated quote unquote medical institution in the world, um, and there's no accountability to ensure that they're actually obeying sort of standard medical care and laws. So that's the background behind the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act was to ensure that babies born alive during abortion procedures are one, giving, given the same level of medical attention and care as any other baby born under normal circumstances. Two, the baby has to immediately be transferred to a hospital because shocker, abortion clinics are not created or equipped to preserve um, perinatal life. They're, they're equipped to murder prenatal life, so they're literally not equipped to take care of a baby because they're not supposed to be dealing with live babies, right? They're supposed to kill them before they're born. And thirdly, if the abortion clinic and staff don't report the fact 
that a baby was born alive during a botched abortion procedure, there will be legal repercussions. And of course, if the staff or abortionist murders that infant after they're born alive during a botched abortion, they'll be held criminally responsible as well. Okay, that was the bill in 2019. Now, does that seem pretty self-evident? Does that seem pretty uh, bipartisan, like Democrats should be able to get on board with that? Well, yes to the politically ignorant, right, who don't know how obsessed the Democrat Party has been with literally preserving infanticide as a way to prop up abortion. So where has this bill gone? That was January of 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022. We're now three years past. Uh, Is that right? Wow. 1920, 21, 22. Yeah, the time flies. I was covering this in the podcast at the time. Um, we're now three years since Ben Sass has proposed this bill. Um, do we have it in law? Has it been passed by the House and the Senate and signed by a president? No, no, because it was vetoed over 80 times. This bill has been vetoed over 80, 80, over 80 times by Pelosi and the Democrats. And we've never been able to get the 60 votes um, right in the Senate to override a veto. I, wh- what do you say to this? I mean, partial birth abortions was disgusting enough, right? I'm now talking about the narrow circumstances in which a baby is born alive during a failed abortion and is now on the table and is now out of mom's uterus. And all the bill says is a, is securing and guaranteeing appropriate medical care for babies who survive botched abortions. There was nothing in the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act that was going to regulate the act of abortion itself, only ensuring proper medical care for babies born alive during failed abortions. And I think there were only two, yes, there were two Democrats who voted, Democrat senators who voted with the Republicans for the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Joe Manch, Joe Manchin, of course, the only one who's, you can call him semi-moderate, in the Democrat Party today, and I forget the other one. Two, two Democrats. Want to know how many Republicans voted against it? None, meaning they all voted for it. This is disgusting. This is full-blown infanticide. We are now morally indistinguishable, okay, from the Aztecs and and the pagan cultures which murdered infants to the sex gods and the weather gods, okay? Now, of course, we already are morally indistinguishable from them because of abortion, because killing babies in the womb is just as as morally wrong as killing them outside the womb. But we do have a more visceral reaction to infanticide, don't we? Because you can literally see the baby, right? We have this nasty tendency of, of, of assuming that infanticide is more wrong than a first trimester abortion just because we can identify with the infant more because the infant looks a little bit more like us, which that says more about us than it does about the status of the unborn. But there is something more grisly, right, about killing an infant because here they are. You can literally hear them screaming. They're not silent screams, right, like Bernard Nathanson's famous film showing babies trying to get away from abortion. It's not a silent scream. You can hear the baby screaming, full-blown infanticide. And the Democrats are perfectly fine with this. They vetoed it over 80 times, guys, over 80 times. Now, we'll finish the show with this one thought. Maybe you're thinking why, right? 
Well, Seth, why would they do that? I just don't understand. I, I like the Democrats for Life group. I just want to reform the Democrat Party because I am pro-life, but I'm whole life, and I like their other allegedly compassionate life issues. So I just want to bring pro-life back into the Democrat platform, back when it was acceptable to be a pro-life Democrat. You know, like in, in 1940, when they weren't excising pro-life Democrats from their party. Why can't we get back to that? Why would they be on board with infanticide? I just don't understand. Because they understand the danger of allowing conservatives to plant moral premises in the law that would eventually lead to reeling back the permissibility of all abortions. If that sentence didn't make sense to you, here's what I mean. If they grant that killing the infant seconds after being born is wrong, then how can they offer a moral defense of third trimester abortions? If they grant that it's a moral wrong to kill infants seconds after being born from a failed abortion procedure and that infant has legal protections, what moral or political case can they reasonably make to argue for the permissibility of third trimester abortions, of killing that baby the day they're due to be born while mom's dilating? Because remember, abortion is legal through all nine months of pregnancy in this country. For any reason or no reason at all. Obviously, if you grant that the infant directly after birth is a person with all of the protections therein, it becomes completely intellectually and politically untenable to argue that it should be permissible to kill a baby directly before they're born. But it is legal to kill a baby directly before they're born. And so if they then grant that infanticide is wrong, they're granting that killing the baby right before birth is wrong. If they grant that killing the baby right before birth is wrong, of course they would then be forced to concede that killing the baby one week before they're born, they're due to be born, would be wrong because reasonably what's different in the biology or development of a baby at 40 weeks and a baby at 39 weeks. And if they grant that the baby is a person with the rights they're in at 39 weeks, how could they reasonably argue that abortion is wrong? Do you see? At the week before that, the week before that. Do you see what I mean? If they allow Republicans and conservatives to plant the moral premise in the law that infants directly after birth are persons and that even if they're born alive in a procedure aimed to kill them, but they survive that procedure, they should be a person, how can you argue for any other form of killing that baby in the womb? That's why they vetoed the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act over 80 times. They're willing to sacrifice full-blown infants on the altar of abortion access to, to protect the ability to procure an abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. And voting for the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act would eventually compromise the right to abortion. And nothing infuriates or causes or strikes more fear into the heart of the left than that because this is their sacrament. This is why the Democrats refuse to condemn even infanticide, whether it's infanticide through partial birth abortions, infanticide through murdering babies who survive botched abortions— um, or infanticide in Maryland, allowing babies to be killed up to 28 days after birth because they refuse to define the word perinatal, therefore allowing parents to starve or murder their infants without legal consequences. This is the Democrat Party's obsession. This is what they will protect because it allows them to prop up abortion, which is how they accrue political power. And it's how they justify their entire regime. Because if you can get the American public 
to support removing the right to life from an entire class of human beings, what else can you not get them to support? If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. And if you can invert the right to life, there's nothing else you can't invert and get the American public to champion, to celebrate, and support. So abortion is not just how they um, how, how they convince uh, themselves that they can be gods by deciding who lives and who dies. It's also how they prop up and justify every other policy push that they're obsessed with. Because if, if certain persons don't have rights and we can define who has rights and who doesn't, there's nothing else we can't justify. This is why they care so much about abortion and why actual infants have now become sacrificial lambs on the altar of their political ideology and on the altar of abortion access. So the next time someone tells you that they're a pro-life evangelical for Biden, uh, that they're, they're pro-life but they're also whole life and they like the other life um, issues and life solutions that the Democrat Party offers, even though they're pro-abortion, um, just know what they have now condoned. Um, and those who say, no, Seth, I can look past the infanticidal pro-abortion agenda of the Democrats because I like their other programs and we shouldn't be single-issue voters, simply ask them if they would look past the Democrat Party's embrace of and support and defense of slavery in the 1850s because you like the social safety net programs that the Democrats offered to black men who maybe managed to secure their own freedom while they were lynching those who weren't freed. Uh, suddenly, those same people would become single-issue voters, wouldn't they? Isn't that so interesting? That goes to show how powerful bigotry is, is that it's even blinded some allegedly pro-lifers to their own discrimination, that they would look past the evil of, of abortion when we know they would not look past the evil of slavery or spousal abuse. So the Democrats have always supported infanticide. Don't let this Maryland bill um, uh, sort of lead you into a trance that only now is the Democrat Party getting more radical. And, and so, you know, those old school Democrats, they were really great. Really? Going back to the 80s and the 90s, they've been embracing and condoning infanticide. Uh, send this show to your Democrat friends. Uh, send it to your pastor who says he, he won't get political because there's no way to love your unborn neighbors through political actions. Um, and thanks for joining the show today. Head on over, leave us a uh, rating and review. We really appreciate it. To learn more, head on over to my website, sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to see my speaking schedule, which we just updated, or to book me for an event. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Thank <laughs> you.